0: Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Kennealy for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, September 29th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. This week, Andrew, the Federal Trade Commission announced a long-awaited antitrust lawsuit accusing Amazon of anti-competitive behavior. In a PW article, publishers responded to the news with, what took so long? Yeah, big news for sure. I'm not sure how big a news it's actually going to be
1: once the case gets going, but just to hear those words, right, Amazon, anti-competitive, it really landed well in the publishing industry. Uh, Of course, the news that we're talking about is that the Federal Trade Commission, as you know, supported by 17 state attorneys general, finally filed its long-awaited antitrust lawsuit against Amazon this week. It's a 172-page complaint, and in it, the government alleges that the e-tailer uses an interlocking web of anti-competitive and unfair strategies to, and I'll quote them here, illegally maintain its monopoly power. Uh, And the use of that power, the government says, allows Amazon to stop rivals, stop other sellers from offering lower prices, and to degrade quality for shoppers, to overcharge sellers to stifle innovation. The list goes on. Uh, It's all about unfairly preventing competitors from competing against Amazon. And ah, just to hear those words in the air, it's like catharsis for the publishing industry, right? Uh, And indeed, as PW noted this week, reaction among the industry upon learning this news was uniformly good. And finally, what took so long? But we do have to come back to reality a little bit here, right? Because this is, reading the 172-page complaint, an ambitious case that could be difficult, difficult both you know, to prove in court and difficult politically, uh, politically fraught. You know, lawyers told me on background, you know, especially because Amazon has this populist message of keeping prices low for consumers and pumping tax dollars into your communities where they hire, that this could be a kind of a fraught case. But none of that really here should make a hell of a difference, right, when it comes to actually the core claims here, which is the anti-competitive conduct. Uh, it's also worth noting that the suit doesn't mention books or ebooks, which, of course, were Amazon's first line of business. The suit does, however, highlight Amazon's hold over the companies who use its online marketplace to sell a range of products, which include books – uh, as we've discussed, there's currently an open suit in New York accusing Amazon of anti competitive contract terms to eliminate price competition in a- the ebook market. Our listeners will remember that that suit was tossed, then it was refiled and came back. And recently, the court sent a report through saying that Amazon should stand trial. The case can go forward on claims of monopoly in the ebook market. Now, that case was initially filed more than two years ago. And I remarked then. That how, how that complaint had come closely on the heels of a congressional report that made it feel like the Amazon Antitrust train was leaving the station and that these firms just wanted on well, the train has pulled out of the station now, destination unknown to torture a metaphor here, but we will now see if this ebook consumer case that's been you know sort of hanging around for two years somehow manages to get folded into all of this. Uh, you can read uh, our piece about the Amazon filing online on the PW site. You can get all of the specific reaction from publishers there. And there is a bit of skepticism about how the case will go. Uh, ABA CEO Allison Hill said the filing of the suit was good news for bookstores at the very least because, you know, it's going to provide some transparency. It should at least hopefully provide some transparency Into Amazon's business practices. ABA, along with the Authors Guild, of course, have been pushing for this kind of action for many, many years. And I should also take this opportunity to raise another point about all of this, and that's that publishers were not innocent bystanders in Amazon's rise, right? They all cashed a lot of checks. They all signed the deals with Amazon, and they all fed this monster that they knew was going to one day come back and try to eat them. So whatever happens with this suit, I think that lesson lingers. Uh, As one indie publisher on background told us, publishers were simply too fearful and too powerless to stand up to their biggest customer. And over time, the publishing industry eventually began subsidizing Amazon's growth and dominance while watching their own margins erode. That is indeed the sign of an unhealthy market. So we'll see if this suit can help to address that. But things
0: could get interesting. So stay tuned. Wednesday afternoon, Publishers Weekly presented Artificial Intelligence, Revolution, and Opportunity in Trade Publishing. It was an ambitious web conference on the latest wave of disruption to hit the industry. Give us a sense of the discussion. Sure. So, you know, every day, right, it's a new AI related headline.
1: And you know, we're certainly hearing all the talk here in the publishing business. You know, as you know, Chris, AI dominated the halls at the London Book Fair this year. Everybody was wondering where it was going to take the industry. So with this event, I think we at Publishers Weekly wanted to give the industry a platform to sort of come together and get it all out, right, to set a benchmark for where we are in this moment. Because I can promise you a year from now, things are going to look very different. Probably even a couple of months from now, things are going to look very different. And a year after that, and a year after that, and so on. So you know, the event was ably hosted and moderated by uh, Thad McElroy, the digital publishing analyst and PW contributor, and my friend Peter Brantley, director of online strategy for the University of California Davis Library. And I think if there was an overall takeaway from this afternoon, you know, four and a half hour AI event is that, you know, from the range of speakers we heard from, you know, despite the serious questions and potential challenges around AI, that AI can actually be good for the book business.
0: Former Penguin Random House CEO Marcus Doley kicked off the webinar by calling AI another digital inflection point for publishers. He further sought to assure industry members that AI won't be the death of publishing.
1: Yes, and I have to say, I loved hearing from Marcus again. You know, anyone who knows him or has heard him speak knows how relentlessly positive he is. He loves to say that this is the best time for publishing since Gutenberg. And he made that very point again yesterday. And look, I know some people like, you know, have a little fun with him and clown on him a little for saying that line, but he believes it and he can kind of back it up with some pretty good evidence. And, you know, the point he is always making is that you can't stop progress, that technology is good. Tech is a tool. So approach it wisely, use it wisely, and the business will be fine because uh, this thing called the book, the idea of reading words on a page and sharing stories, that is Teflon, right? It's ageless. And he quoted Margaret Atwood. He noted that storytelling and reading, that's hardwired in us all. So as long as we're smart about what we do with technology, we're in good shape. Now, Dolly's view was that AI offers huge opportunities, and the opportunities far outweigh the potential challenges and threats that come with AI. And he noted how book publishing has a history of significantly benefiting from technology, from digital tools, uh, from machine learning, and generative AI will further transform, enhance, and optimize the reach of publishing, he said. Now, all that said, there are certainly some things that need to be looked at with caution, he noted, including the preservation of copyright protection which he linked with author compensation and which dolly called the lifeblood of our industry if we lose that meaning copyright protection he said we lose everything and you know a pair of late afternoon panels at the event sort of touched on that right so it touched on the anxiety that creators are feeling over copyright specifically the copyright concerns tangled up with these AI companies training their large language models on troves of unauthorized and, in some cases, blatantly pirated content scraped from the internet. And, you know, sort of the potential for those AI services to then, you know, use all that content to put the creators they trained on out of work. So already we've seen numerous class action lawsuits filed by creators. we talked about them on this program. Uh, There's been four separate actions filed by authors so far alone – All Claiming Copyright Infringement. And as Faye would have it, one of the attorneys representing one of those author groups, Scott Scholder, who's the litigation co-chair at the law firm Cowan Debates, Abraham and Shepard, was at our webinar. He spoke with Peter Brantley about the intricacies of copyright law and fair use and fair compensation for creators and how AI represents a unique challenge. And while much of that conversation revolved around the potential complexities of using AI as a tool for creation in line with copyright law, eventually the conversation came around to litigation and fair use, all that stuff that's in the headlines, and whether AI's ability to, as Brantley put it, take in all of these grains of sand and turn out a sand castle, crosses a legal line somewhere. And you will not be surprised to know the shoulder, citing his current case, He had a lot of good things to say, but when it comes down to the fair use question, it's central to his case. So all he could say really is he noted that fair use is a very, very gray area. Uh, He said, and I'll quote him here, that his clients have taken a stance. The other side has taken a stance and the court's going to have to decide. Fair enough. Uh, But I thought it was the panel immediately following Shoulder that really was sort of the most insightful and the most searching discussion of the day. And in that panel, uh, Peter Brantley talked with two authors, both of whom have experimented with using AI in their works. Uh, This is Shawn Michaels, the author of, Do You Remember Being Born? And the bestselling author and screenwriter, uh, Greg Hurwitz. And both authors spoke very eloquently about approaching AI and technology more with artistic curiosity than with fear. And, you know, all that's because, look, and we've talked about it before, a, a licensing solution, everybody seems to be really bent on getting a licensing solution and getting permission to use things and training AI, but that still does not solve the real problem of AI, which is the specter of these machines replacing human creators. Even if you could do it, a collective licensing system could not divvy up enough fractions of pennies from whatever use that AI would be making to compensate any creator enough for losing their work to a machine. So both of these authors made the point that we have to take care of each other as artists. And both authors said they were going to use these remarkable tools in their works. You know, I'll take, uh, you know, Michael's at one point said, this is a line that really struck me. He said, it's hard for me to imagine a world 10 or 20 years from now where another generation of artists isn't making incredible work that is truly human-driven, but that draws on these incredible AI tools in interesting ways. And I take his point. I agree. And Hurwitz agreed, too. And he made another key point. And that's that people will always want human excellence, right? They don't want to read books written by machines. People don't want to watch Deep Blue play a chess match against Deep Blue, he noted, citing the famous chess program. They wanted to see how Kasparov would fare. And again, I believe that that applies to books. Nobody wants books to be divorced from human authors. But how AI can push and aid human authors and creators is pretty exciting to contemplate with, of course, proper guardrails. Anyway, there's tons more in these sessions. If you signed up and didn't get a chance to watch them all, you can watch the recordings online for free. In the coming days, I'm sure we'll have more reports in PW. And I'm actually told that I think another webinar on the subject is already in the works. And I will be very interested to see how much has changed by the time we get to that next one. So, uh, yeah, look out for that. Coming up on Sunday, Banned Books Week begins. Yeah, remember when we used to talk about how we celebrate Banned Books Week? It was not too long ago. It was just a couple of years ago. Uh, Not so much a celebration anymore these days, but a massive battle. Uh, And this year's Banned Books Week uh, comes at a pretty crucial moment. Now, there's good news to celebrate, of course. We've had a string of legal victories defending the freedom to read. uh, And we'll talk a little more about Banned Books Week and all of this stuff next week. But then there's the other side, too, which I feel compelled to mention as we get going with Banned Books Week on Sunday. And that's that librarians and teachers continue to be threatened by an organized political assault that isn't so much a traditional attack on the freedom to read, at least not as we've come to know it, but is a frontal assault on people of color, on the LGBTQ and trans communities using books. This is an effort to erase entire populations from our bookshelves. And that's what I think, you know, as we go into this year's banned Books Week, I think that needs to be the takeaway. This is, of course, about the First Amendment and free speech, but more to the point, what we're seeing is this assault on equity, and it's raging still. So I have a piece in Monday's issue where we look at sort of banned books by the numbers, and we talk a little bit about that with, you know, the ALA's Deborah Caldwell Stone and Every Library's John Kraska. And I think as we look ahead to the events of Banned Books Week and more to come next week for sure, that we should keep in mind exactly what's going on here, which is, you know, an attack on marginalized communities.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, in Shimmer Don't Shake, Nadeem Sadek entwines the histories of AI and book publishing to make his case that AI technologies can complement and not necessarily replace human authors, editors, and publishers. Sadek, a serial entrepreneur who has worked in fields as disparate as market research and whiskey distilling, has also just launched his latest company, Shimmer.ai a service that produces a unique DNA print for any book. There's a huge
1: investment in the exhibition of human creativity that just languishes in the dark too much. And, and I think it's just because it's been very hard to make it obvious to people that this stuff is available and that you can access it and enjoy it. So if there is a nobility to our purpose, it is... The assistance of that creativity being available, coming to people's notice, and actually ultimately matching it with their psychological profiles and preferences.
0: Nadim Sadek's Digital Diplomacy, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burris Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.